Uh, the scripture reading this morning is from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, and it can be found on page 1163 in the Pew Bibles, and is also behind us. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who are worshipped by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Welcome to uh, you. If uh, you're visiting with us, uh, good to see you. I'm glad to be back here with you. We had a wonderful little trip to Nebraska. Got to visit our family, got to uh, introduce our daughter who was born here to several family members who didn't have a chance to meet her yet, so that was a fun time. But we are glad to be back and glad to open the word with you all this morning. Question, what's at stake in being able to tell the difference between a fake and, a genu- and the genuine article? In 1999, a group of explorers teamed up with CBS to venture 350 feet below the surface of a small mountain lake in Austria, Lake Toplitz. I'm probably butchering that pronunciation. There, they discovered one of the long-standing secrets of Hitler's Nazi Germany, one of their long-standing secret plots. They found hundreds of millions of pounds of counterfeit British currency dumped into the bottom of this lake. So well crafted that even the trained experts would have a hard time telling it apart from the real thing. Those bills had been sitting there since 1945. Shortly after the war had ended, Hitler had killed himself, and so the German soldiers took all of this money and hid it in the bottom of that lake. Their plan, which they didn't get to execute, had been to fly over major cities in England and release the money, counting on human nature to kick in and people to gather up and hoard as much as they could and spend it, even though they knew it was counterfeit. Uh, Author and blogger Tim Challies tells this story, and he explains the implications of Hitler's plot. He writes, Had the German plan succeeded, millions of citizens, banks, and shops would have been fooled into accepting this worthless money. Such a massive influx of counterfeit currency could prove fatal to a nation's economy. Shops might refuse to sell their goods, fearing that the money they received for their wares would prove worthless. Banks might refuse to accept or distribute cash. Without currency, goods could not exchange hands. Panic and chaos would ensue. The economy of even a great nation could be devastated by such a devious plan. The danger of a counterfeit is twofold. First, it deceives people into putting their hope and trust into something that can't deliver. Second, it causes those who are trusting in the genuine article to become suspicious and doubt, no longer sure 
what to believe. You know, if that money's not good, what about this? And if counterfeit money is deadly for a national economy, then counterfeit Christianities, counterfeit expressions of the faith, are deadly to the spiritual well-being, not only of individuals and churches, but really the whole world. Our passage this morning in Philippians 1 through 3 sounds a sharp note of warning, urging us to beware of false Christian teaching and counterfeit Christian communities. And Paul does this by telling us to anchor our hope and our joy in the genuine article in Jesus Christ, and to take confidence that in Him, and only in Him, we are part of God's new covenant community that approaches God by the Spirit, not by the flesh, and that boasts and glories in Christ, not in self, not in family descent or personal performance. So that's where Paul's taking us. Let's pray together as we look at this passage. Lord, we are grateful to be gathered to open your word. And we're thankful that you have not hidden yourself from us, but that by your spirit, in the face of Jesus, you've made yourself known and you've given us your word in the scriptures. Lord, we want to see you and hear you this morning. And so we pray that you would open our hearts, you would quicken our minds, you would give us ears to hear your voice, and that you would transform us right here, right now, as we look into your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we began our journey through the book of Philippians uh, last fall. And again, if you're just joining us for that journey, I want to welcome you. The book of Philippians is one of several letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. Uh, this one is addressed to a, a small, fledgling church uh, in the Macedonian city of Philippi that Paul had founded about 10 years earlier. It's, the book itself is perhaps known best as a, a book full of joy. Throughout the book, we have these exhortations to be joyful or to rejoice in the Lord. Our passage this morning is one of those uh, exhortations. But the heartbeat of the book, the main thrust of what Paul wants us to get is his vision for the church to partner together in the gospel and for the gospel. So he wants us to be shaped, he wants our lives and our relationships to be shaped around the good news of Jesus, what he's done to rescue us, to, to establish God's kingdom, to deal with our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. He wants our lives and relationships shaped around that gospel, and he wants us to partner together as a team for the advance of that gospel into the surrounding communities and, and into the world. Now, when we last looked at Philippians uh, in early December, we saw two portraits of this kind of gospel partnership, the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus at the end of chapter 2, whose lives had been so captivated by Jesus that they were willing to lose everything in order to advance him and his mission. Well, as we turn into chapter 3, Paul is going to spend this chapter, which we'll look at over the next few weeks, he's going to spend this chapter clarifying what's at stake in whether or not the gospel 
actually stands at the center of our lives and our ministries. Whether or not the person and work of Jesus forms the basis of our relationship with God and fuels our, our, our lives and our ministries. And so he starts in verse 1 with a very familiar exhortation to this book. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now you have to remember here that Paul's a preacher. So when he says finally, it doesn't mean he's nearing the end of the book. Actually, that word finally can be translated several different ways, and something like so then or furthermore is probably a better translation here. But either way, there's no question Paul is trying to make an important point. He wants us to rejoice in the Lord. He said it before in chapter 1, verse 18, and chapter 2, verse 18. He'll say it again in chapter 4, verse 4. Apparently, this is so important, Paul has no problem repeating himself. As he says here, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. No kidding. Four times, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. In chapter 4, he says it twice. I'll say it again, rejoice in the Lord. But he goes on. And it is a safeguard for you. Now, what's that mean? What does Paul mean? when he tells us to rejoice in the Lord, and why does that provide safety and protection for God's people? Well, Paul is not telling us to put on a happy face for God. He's not telling us to pretend that there aren't problems in this world, that things don't go wrong. They obviously do. He's not telling us to find the silver lining in every cloud. He's not calling us to some generic, pleasant disposition, kind of that pasted-on smile when life falls apart. That's not what he's talking about at all. Rather, he's calling us to rejoice in, to delight in, to find our satisfaction and significance in the Lord, in Jesus Christ. Not in this world, not in our circumstances, not in each other, not even in what Jesus gives us, but in Jesus himself. Rejoice in the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. That kind of joy is what frees us to serve Christ and to partner together in his gospel in, in unity and humility and love, to be satisfied and delight in Christ. And as Paul says at the end of verse 1, this kind of joy is a safeguard to us. Why? Well, first, because only Jesus is qualified and capable of dealing with and rescuing us from our greatest problem in life, the eternal consequences of our sinful rebellion against God. You know, this world is, is messed up in all sorts of ways, and every one of us can give testimony to the different problems that we face, and those are real problems. They're not insignificant. But none of the problems we face in this life compare to the weight of offending a holy God by choosing not to follow him or treat him like God. That is by far, by far our greatest problem. Psalm 14, 
verses 2 through 3 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So that's the biggest problem in humanity, and it's all of our problems. We need protection from that. We need a safeguard from that. That's why we rejoice in Jesus. Only Jesus is qualified and capable of rescuing us from God's wrath and restoring us to a right relationship with God because only Jesus is both fully God and fully human, capable of accomplishing God's eternal purposes by standing in the place of sinful humanity in his life, his death, and his resurrection. He lived the life that we couldn't live as God's faithful son in full obedience to his covenant rule. He died the death we deserved, laying his life down on the cross to take God's anger against our sin on himself that by his spirit we might be cleansed of that sin, we might be forgiven and receive new life and an eternal hope of the resurrection. Jesus is our sufficient Savior. He did what no one else can do. He did what no one else can do, and it was enough. Moreover, right now, Jesus stands or sits at the right hand of his Father interceding for us as our great high priest. We sing a few minutes ago, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. There is no accusation of Satan, nothing that can cause us to depart from God's presence and from his people because Jesus bought us with his own blood, and he stands there interceding on our behalf. Jesus is our safety. He's our safety. And he offers this safety, this security, this new life, this new identity, this eternal hope to us through faith by placing all our hope, all our trust, all our joy in Christ. For he alone is able to bring us to God. Rejoicing in Jesus is a safety. But Paul has something more, even more specific in mind, uh, a more specific way that rejoicing in Jesus is a protection for us. As he continues in verses 2 through 3, to warn us against being led astray by counterfeit Christianities, by teachers and communities that look like Christianity, that even sound like Christianity, but in reality are a fraud, a deception that threaten to seduce us into placing our hope in their empty promises and that stir up all sorts of doubt over whether or not we have the genuine article. Is this Jesus the true Jesus? And so on. Rejoicing in Jesus as he's made known to us in the scriptures, as he's revealed himself by the Spirit, and being satisfied in him is a safeguard from going astray. Let's look at Paul's specific warning. Verse 2, 
And catch the repetition here. Here from the ESV. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul gives a threefold warning here against counterfeits in these verses, and then he follows it with a threefold description of the genuine article. What does a real Christian community look like? And the tone that he uses here isn't exactly friendly. He's agitated and upset. And it shows in the blunt staccato of his warning, look out, look out, look out, and in the sharp edge of his words. Now, when you step back a minute and you think about the rest of Philippians and all that we've been learning about the necessity of unity and humility and love, and then you come up against these verses, it's not a little shocking to, to see Paul being so sharp. You know, I thought we were supposed to be humble. And this is, sounds pretty judgmental here, Paul. You know, there are a lot nicer words you can use to describe your opponents than dogs, evildoers, and mutilators. But the unity that Paul speaks of here is not won by throwing out the truth. Rather, it's a unity that comes from being bound together in the truth of Jesus. There's no unity with a counterfeit because it's not the real deal. And humility doesn't mean that we never exercise discernment when something is wrong or even dangerous. The kinds of counterfeits that Paul's warning against don't merely differ on a few secondary issues. Now, there's a great deal of diversity in the body of Christ. There are different doctrines that several of us in this room agree to disagree on that are secondary doctrines. Paul's not talking about that kind of stuff. We want to be partnered together with genuine brothers and sisters in the faith here and in other congregations, other denominations. All who call on the name of the Lord are our brothers and sisters in the faith. Paul's not talking about secondary differences. He's not talking, the people he's warning us against aren't promoting slightly different theologies. They're promoting damning theologies. Theologies, things that if you believe them, then you forfeit Christ and his grace and therefore face eternal judgment in hell. That's what Paul's warning against. And so while, yes, Scripture clearly calls us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, that doesn't mean you don't sound the alarm when a wolf comes near the pen, especially if he's dressed in sheep's clothing. Now, Paul's agitated because the flock that he is shepherding faces a great threat. And so he sounds the alarm. It's his job as a shepherd to warn them. And that requires strong words. Now, Imagine walking down the street with your three-year-old child and a foaming Rottweiler breaks its chain and begins lumbering ominously toward your kid. 
what kind of words are you going to use to explain to your child the dangerous nature of this threat? Oh, look at the little puppy. No, you're not going to say that. You're going to say, that's a big, bad, mean dog, and it'll bite your face off if you go near it. That's what you're going to do. Because the level of agitation reflects the severity of the threat. This is a severe threat. Paul's agitated. He's worked up. So what is the precise counterfeit that he's warning them against? And what's so dangerous about it? Well, the words he uses to describe this group of people, these not-so-nice words, are actually a pretty brutal irony. This people, this group, is what scholars call Judaizers. So a group of Jews who were willing to believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah and King of Israel, but claimed that to be a true follower of God, you still had to become Jewish. You had to receive the sign of the covenant, circumcision, and you had to keep the law of Moses that God gave Israel at Mount Sinai. And that's what was necessary to be a real follower of God. So unlike the Gentile dogs, that's a word that first century Jews would sometimes use to describe the unclean Gentiles, those who are of non-Jewish descent. Unlike those dogs who practiced evil instead of following God's law and participated in pagan religions, which sometimes involved cutting themselves and other forms of mutilation, the Judaizers prided themselves in their heritage as God's people and their performance of God's law by which they believed that they were therefore qualified to know and worship God. So trusting in Jesus and what he had done on the cross wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to be declared in the right with God, to enter into relationship, to become part of his covenant people. Instead, they depended on what they themselves could do out of their own effort and flesh to keep God's law, and they boasted in their ethnic descent as Jews, the people of the covenant, also known elsewhere as the circumcision. In essence, the Judaizers created a counterfeit Christianity. Not just a different theology, but a damning one. Because, because they missed the fact that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Covenant, that the whole thing pointed to him and his life and death and resurrection in our place, through which he established a new covenant in his blood and brought God's promised blessing of his spirit to all nations through faith. You take a look at Galatians 3.14. Because they missed all of that, the Judaizers created a Christianity that, if you bought into it, was unable to make good on its promises of life and salvation because it replaced Jesus with heritage and hard work. And that's how you could get in. Moreover, it threatened to stir up doubt and disillusionment among those who had placed their faith in Christ, had become part of God's true family, causing them to wonder, have we done enough? What have I missed? Now, these people are saying, I need to add all of this stuff. I'm, I'm confused. It was a Christianity that resulted in what Paul describes in Galatians 5.4. You are severed from Christ. 
you who would be justified by the law, you have forfeited grace. That was the result of this counterfeit Christianity. And so to warn the Philippians, Paul turned the labels that the Judaizers had used on the Gentiles onto themselves and co-opted one of their favorite titles for themselves for God's true church. Without Jesus, the Judaizers were the dogs. They, their law-keeping was an evil substitute for Christ. And their circumcision that they prided themselves in was nothing more than a pagan act of self-mutilation. On the contrary, Paul says in verse 3, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. That's the mark of true Christianity. Membership in God's covenant people is not based on our ethnic heritage or our moral performance, keeping God's law, doing more good deeds than, than bad ones, and even less on a physical marking in the skin. Paul says in Romans 2.29, circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code, the law. That's the circumcision that matters. Has God marked your heart? True Christianity serves God by the Spirit, not the flesh, and boasts in Jesus Christ, not in self or family descent or personal performance. True Christianity doesn't barge into God's presence and expect an audience with him based on who we are and what we've done. It's neither the, relig the religion of the privileged son or the self-made man. It's not how it works. Rather, it knows all too well the truth of what we mentioned earlier, that in the face of God's holiness, left to ourselves, we deserve the deepest pit of hell because of our sin. That's how bad we are compared to God God's holiness. And so... Genuine Christianity knows that the only way I can come into God's presence and walk with him in service and obedience and joyful relationship is by the cleansing and empowering work of God's Spirit. He has to do it in us. And that's only available through faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so our boast is in him. It's not in ourselves. It's not in what we can do. Our boast is in Jesus. He is our glory. We put no confidence in the flesh, in who we are and what we can do, because our flesh is weak, it's frail, and it's full of sin. That's all I got. And so we look to Jesus. We boast in Jesus only by God's grace, only by God giving us something wonderful, even though we deserve something terrible on the basis of Christ's sacrifice, can we know and love God as his new covenant people? We worship by God's spirit, and we boast and rejoice and glory in Jesus. The common denominator among all counterfeit Christianities is that they try to gain an audience with God out of the flesh, and therefore, not through Jesus Christ. As Paul says elsewhere, 
See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. Christ is what matters. For the Judaizers, this meant first rolling back the clock as though Jesus hadn't yet come, as though God's people were still under all the stipulations of Israel's old covenant law, rather than the new covenant in Christ's blood, and then misusing that law as though it could be manipulated to earn God's favor. That's how they avoided Christ. Throughout the history of the church, the temptation has often gone in the opposite direction. So, not going back to Israel's law, but to move beyond Christ to new laws and stipulations of our own making. That's what we tend to do. Because like the Judaizers, we want the credit. We want the credit for what we've done. Whether it's through a generic moralism, so just do enough good works for God to, to accept you, or perhaps different varieties of fundamentalism, you know, adding culturally shaped commands to Scripture and then using those new commands as the standard of spirituality, or whether it's all the ways that church traditions of every variety are tempted to smuggle good works into God's grace, adding new doctrines or new rituals that are necessary to receive his favor or gain a hearing with God. No Christian church is immune from this temptation. Westgate's not an exception. This is a temptation. And while some of these particular problems are more along the lines of imperfections rather than counterfeits, in that they're not necessarily looking for salvation apart from Christ, they're just making it unnecessarily hard to find and enjoy salvation in Christ, they do tend to stir up guilt and anxiety among God's people. They create a performance-based environment where I'm always worried if I'm doing enough, and more particularly, whether or not you think I'm doing enough. And so there's this anxiety rather than joy in God's grace that fuels a genuine obedience. And then there are those religious communities outside of Christianity. So the temptations for all churches. But there are those religious communities outside of Christianity that pose a substantial threat precisely because of their counterfeit nature. They look like Christianity. They sound like Christianity. But in their denial of Christ and his sufficiency, and thus their dependence on self, they have severed themselves from grace. Their empty promises threaten to deceive God's people and to throw them into confusion. And so we need to call them what they are. The, the church needs to beware. And if it feels like I'm beginning to bark a little too loudly here, then know that the severity of the comments reflect the seriousness of the threat. So for instance, Unitarian Universalism is a counterfeit Christianity. It uses the language of Christianity. Some branches claim to practice from a Christian perspective. Their buildings look like Christian churches, but they deny the essential doctrines that make historic, 
orthodox biblical Christianity what it is. They deny the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement for our sin, the things that we confessed together this morning in the Nicene Creed earlier. Now, that's not to say that our Unitarian neighbors and friends aren't good people, that they aren't you know, doing many kind things for the community. It is to say that they're outside of saving faith. And therefore, that means we need to guard against the deception and we need to minister the gospel of Jesus to them because they need the saving faith of Christ just as much as we do. Similarly, Mormonism, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is a counterfeit Christianity. It uses the language of Christianity. It claims to be Christianity. It's in the middle of a nationwide publicity campaign to convince you that it's part of Christianity. But again, it denies the essential doctrines of Orthodox Christian faith. It denies the Trinity. God was created at one point as a human, lived, died, and then earned his own planet and populated it with all of his wives, and that's how we came to be here. That's not historic Orthodox Christianity. It denies the substitutionary atonement of Christ. You earn your way up by your own good works. It uses the same vocabulary, but a very different dictionary. And so, therefore, it's a very insidious threat. Now, that's probably not news to many of us. But it's interesting to follow the dialogue sparked by uh, Mitt Romney's presidential campaign. As most of us know, Romney's a Mormon. Now, regardless of what you think about his politics, what's interesting to me is how puzzled or offended some people have been when several Christian leaders have publicly stated that Mormonism is a theological cult, a counterfeit Christianity. In fact, according to Lifeway Research, only three out of four Protestant pastors agree with that sentiment. That's interesting. Again, it's not to say that our Mormon friends are not... Uh, kind, well-meaning people who do a lot of good for their communities. They do. Sometimes they put us to shame. It is to say that they're outside of saving faith, and so that we need to beware, and we need to bring the gospel of Jesus into their lives. And we can add other counterfeits to the list. Christian science, Jehovah's Witnesses, the health and wealth prosperity gospel you find on television, you know, where you can buy your salvation and your health and your wealth if you send your tax-deductible gift to the studio because Pastor's Rolls-Royce is in the shop and he needs some more money. You know, that's counterfeit. That's charlatans stealing your money, preying on your life. We need to beware of that. Any version of Christianity that depends on what we can do and takes away from the exclusivity or the sufficiency of Christ in order to be right with God is counterfeit Christianity. But Paul's point here is that the best way to be on guard against counterfeits is to rejoice in the genuine article, Jesus. The point is not to avoid relationships with our friends and family members that are part of these different communities. They need the gospel of Christ just as much as we do. I hope you have friends in those communities. I hope you love them 
with the love of Christ. Neither is the point to pride ourselves that we are right and they're wrong. That would be to completely miss Paul's point here. Our boast is not in ourselves. It's in Jesus. It's in God's Spirit. It's in what He has done, not what we have done. We find all our satisfaction and hope and significance in Him. He makes the difference. Apart from Christ, we have nothing. Nothing. But in Jesus, and only through faith in Jesus, we have everything. We can rejoice and rest confidently that by His grace, not our works, by His grace alone, we are part of God's covenant community, children of God, members of His family. We, we have His inheritance Members of God's church, the one body of Christ united in him across all nations, time, and places. Who worship God by the Spirit, not the flesh. And who boast in Jesus. Not in self, not in family descent, not in our personal performance, or anything else. So may Christ be all our joy. And may we find safety in him. Let's pray. Lord, give us a vision of your son. Remind us who he is. What he's done. Remind us that he is sufficient. That he is enough. And that he is beautiful that everything painful and ugly and sinful in this world, he's taken it on himself that he might share the wholeness and forgiveness of God with us. God, may we glory and rejoice in Jesus. May we not be proud. May we of all people who know the extent of our sin in the light of your holiness, may we not be proud. May our hearts break. And may we overflow with compassion and love to shine the light of the gospel throughout New England and around the world. May we rejoice in Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.